You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Let's go and look right now at Romans chapter 1, where we're going to start in this book. It becomes basically the theme verse of the whole book, by the way. And uh, it is Romans 1. We're going to read verse 14 through 17. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This passage has been called the gospel in a nutshell. I know most people think it's John 3.16, the gospel in a nutshell, but this one probably is even more powerful. What? Yeah. And, um, you know, just as the acorn has the entire oak tree inside of it, there is so much to unpack in just those few verses today uh, that when we unpack it, I'm hoping basically that gates of heaven open up before us. And you might go like, that's an odd way to say it. That's exactly the way that um, the founding uh, person of the Reformation put it, Martin Luther. Uh, He discovered in this passage that we're looking at today what changed and started the Reformation, and that is the gospel. So he had struggled a long time with his understanding what the righteousness of God is, specifically that's mentioned in this passage. And he thought, uh, you know, the righteousness of God is how God is right about everything, and he'd be right to judge me, right to condemn me, because I am not perfect. I'm not even close to perfect. I can't do anything that's great. And he was starting to trying to figure out what that all meant, Okay, And he really, really struggled with this passage. And then he finally had the breakthrough. It was called the Tower Experience. He writes about it because it happened in a tower in a castle. And this is how he writes about it after the fact. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage me. Therefore, I did not love a just angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became the most, me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And that's kind of what I hope happens for all of us, that this becomes kind of that gate to heaven and it breaks open for us. And for that, I think, to happen... 
I think there are three points we need to realize from this passage. The form that the gospel is, the content of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. First of all, the form. You know, all the way through this first part of the book of Romans, if you'd read the whole chapter and chapter two, you'd see this word gospel come up again and again, probably more times than anywhere else in the book, and probably more times than anywhere else in the Bible, the word gospel. And we hear gospel all the time today. That's the gospel truth, and this is the gospel. But what does the word gospel actually mean? Well, if we look at the Greek word itself, it is euangelion. And I know um, you're not maybe used to Greek words, but the first part of it, you, is kind of the preposition that means true or right or good, actually. The word you means good. And angelion, you can almost hear angel, angel, message, messenger. Because angels, whether they were spiritual beings or whatever, it was just a messenger, someone who carried the message. And this word euangelion, well, it's good news. Believe it or not, the word euangelion was all about the media in Paul's day. The media. Because in that day and age, how did word get out? How did words get around? You know, they didn't, even though there was writing, it's not like they had mass publishing, no newspapers to pass it all over the place. They didn't have um, Instagram, no TikTok, no, um, no radio, no broadcast. You know what they had? So let's say a king in his battle or a general has a battle. In fact, there was one at one time we'll get to in just a moment. When they had a great victory 20, 30 miles away from their town and defeated an enemy, that general or that king would send an angelos, a messenger, to run back as fast as he could all the way to the town and cry out victory. For instance, there was a battle between the Athenians and I believe the Persians on the plains of Marathon years before the Gospels were written and years before. And there was, and the Athenians won and along came a runner who ran 26.2 miles from Marathon all the way back to Athens. And in the middle of the city, he cries out the word victory, collapses and die. And that word for victory is? Nike, your tennis shoes, <laughs> okay? That's an example of good news. It was something that came to the people from outside of them. They did nothing, but they got to celebrate and to change their whole history and the whole direction of their lives. That's what Paul is saying. That's good news. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Big difference. Big difference. You know, I, um, religion is good advice. There's a lot of religions in the world, and they've got a lot of good advice and a lot of techniques and a lot of ways to follow this and that and kind of grow and try and do all these things. But Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. So, for instance, if you ask somebody, um, what is uh, the essence of Christianity? I ask people that, they might say, well, you know, 
It's trying to be a good person, you know, follow the golden rule, be like Jesus. Well, that sounds good, right? And it's true, right? But it's good advice. It's just telling people what to do. And, and the problem with that, there's going to be no breakthrough. The heavens are not going to be opened up to you because um, it tells you what to do, but it doesn't give you any power to do it. I mean, I do not live like Jesus every day or any day. I just can't. I mean, I might try, and it might be good advice, but I don't follow it all the time. It's not the good news that comes from outside of me, done for me and given to me. And that's what Christianity really is. It's that victory that Jesus won that we get to proclaim to other people and celebrate and say, here it is, victory, celebration, salvation given to you. That's the breakthrough you need in life. You don't need more good, good advice. In fact, when you hear the guidance, you know, of, oh, here, you got to live like Jesus. This is what you follow the golden rule. Do this, do that. Um, there are three different responses you can have to that. It's usually, a, it's a form of law. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term law, okay? But, and um, these are the three. You can either kind of say, sure, you know, you hear the good advice, you know, love, love your enemies, love one another. And you could say, yeah, okay, nothing new. I've heard that before. And you kind of shrug. Okay? Then there are other people who might say, what? <laughs> Live like, love your enemy? I can't do that. And it's going to bug you. And Martin Luther, that's what happened to him. It bugged him to no end that he knew what the law was. He knew what he was supposed to do, and he couldn't do it. And he felt condemned by it. It bugged him. And then finally, there are other people who hear, you know, you know love one another. Or, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, sure, I do that all the time. I'm really good at that. I'm better than most. That's kind of the pharisaical response. And so you can become very smug. So either you're going to shrug, you're going to be bugged, or you'll become smug. But you will not have the breakthrough of the gospel. The breakthrough is when you realize you have received a gift from outside of yourself, the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you freely, the victory won, you've done nothing for it. So that's understanding the form of the gospel. Secondly, the content. Paul wrote in Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that is the exact spot that Luther meditated on and struggled with trying to figure out what in the world Paul was saying there. He knew it was God's word, but he didn't get it. And then finally he had that breakthrough because he understood that the word about being called just after this, that a person is declared just or righteous before God. Justified. This theme that we have said for the entire series on Romans, probably one of the most important words in the book of Romans is that word justified. And um, you have to understand kind of what that means. Um, to justify is really not to change something but to make a change in relation to that. 
Now, I know that's really abstract, but for instance, if I am talking to you and you talk to me and you say, and, and, you, t and you say, so-and-so is the best baseball player that ever existed. You know, Tom Seavers just died this week, so maybe you'll say he's the best pitcher that ever. I might say to you, uh, can you justify that statement? And what I'm asking is not that you change your statement about Tom Seavers. I'm asking you to give me proof that that is a Change me in my relationship to that statement so I accept that statement. Does that make sense? That's the change that actually happens. I'm not asking you to change that statement. I want you to change my relationship to that statement. And that is what the gospel does, actually. Paul says in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that God changes his relationship to you. He changes his relationship to you because that relationship at once was hostile we were at war, and instead, he makes it a relationship of peace. But he doesn't change it by changing you to start with. He doesn't ask you to change first, and then he changes his relationship to you. But instead, he justifies you. He changes his, your status from outside of yourself. How does he do that? Because Jesus comes to take our place. Jesus trades places with us. That's what the cross is really all about. It's where we get what we we get what he deserved and he gets what we deserved. Okay? The cross is where Jesus gets what we deserved and we get what he deserves. And that changes our relationship. We are justified by God's grace. He changes our relationship. We're declared not guilty, righteous. We are giving the status of Jesus Christ before the Heavenly Father. So another way of saying it is, um, justification is a lot more than just getting your sins forgiven. Now, I'm not saying that forgiveness of sins isn't part of it, but it's not the whole of it. It's like um, Jesus dying on the cross. If, if Jesus just dying on the cross meant, okay, any time that I sin, then I can go to God and ask for forgiveness, and then I get forgiven, that really doesn't change my status before God, because then I just have to keep going back to God every time to get a little more of that forgiveness to make sure, and I, it's up to me to make sure that that happens, and then he'll forgive me, and then I'm back to square one. No. No. You have a whole new status. Another example. A person's in prison, convicted rightly for breaking the law. Now, what's going to give him a whole new status? You know? If he gets simply a parole, that doesn't change his status. Oh, he's out. You're, you're done. That's paid for. He is still then under the law just like us slobs, and he's got to keep it in order to stay out of prison. Even with a pardon, he's still under the law, and he has to stay out under the law. He has to keep doing the right things in order to stay in that status. But with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's more than even a pardon from the governor. It is a change in status. It is, yes, the pardon that you are forgiven, that you were a criminal and now you are not, no longer that record has been expunged. And at the same time then, 
you've been given the Congressional Medal of Honor, the Nobel Peace Prize, and a billion dollars in your bank account. It's not just a removal of the negative, it's also a bestowal of an extreme positive, the entire status and righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Paul says this in Romans 8, that we become joint heirs, co-heirs with Christ. In other words, everything that is rightfully his is now rightfully mine, yours. You don't get 50%. You don't get 5%. We don't all just share a little piece of the pie. We get the whole pie. We get everything that Jesus gets. Everything that is his rightly is now ours because of God's grace. All of that. How do I know if somebody actually gets this and makes a breakthrough? It might be when you ask that question. Um, Tell me, are you a Christian? And the person goes like, well, I'm trying to be. They're not getting it. Because they think somehow being a Christian is about how I'm doing. My quality of life makes me a Christian or not. No, becoming a I understand when people saying, you know, I'm wanting to live a better life. Okay, but being a Christian means that I've got the status, the gift of Jesus Christ, regardless of the quality of my, it's not about me. It's about him. It's about what he has done. Yes, I am a Christian, period. I have received that outrageously great status of Jesus Christ himself not because of anything I've done, not because I've been good at anything, but because of his grace. You're declared righteous and given. You're no longer a slave, but a son. You're no longer in bondage, but you're a daughter. You have all the honors and privileges of Jesus himself before the throne of God, period, whoever you are, no matter what. And finally, for breakthrough, I think it's this, the power of the gospel. We need to understand that. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul doesn't say here that the gospel brings some power to your life or is the medium to that power, the connect, but he says the gospel is the power of God. Huge difference. When you hear that gospel and receive it, you have the power of God coursing through your veins. And one way you know that power has been active in your life is the first response to the gospel is not, wow, isn't that wonderful, but kind of an offense. Paul says at the beginning, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which means a lot of people are probably ashamed of the gospel. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, he goes through how the Gentiles find it a stumbling block, or the Jews find it a stumbling block, and the Gentiles find it foolishness. Basically, they're offended by it because it's like, doesn't make sense. That, in other words, for religious and irreligious people, the gospel seems absurd. It's offensive. It um, gets in the way of my ego. First of all, for those who are religious, it's offensive because, you know, they hear the gospel and it's like, wait a minute, that's too easy. 
are you kidding me? You mean anybody? Really? Even no matter how bad? I've been trying to live a good life, and you're saying that that ha In fact, I remember back when I was in seminary, um, back in the 80s, um, I met somebody, and he was a very religious, devout person. And he basically told me one day, you mean that everything I've been working on all my life is just a crock of manure? It was offensive to him because it was, quote, too easy. And it wasn't about everything that he was trying to gain by his own status. The religious are offended because they've been working on their identity about their goodness and their works and how they impress other people. And God says, no, that all gets put aside and you are given a whole new identity in Jesus Christ. But the irreligious, the irreligious are equally offended because, you know, honestly, they don't want to be called deficient or needing anything too, you know? Um, the irreligious might say, hey, I'm no Mother Teresa, but at least I'm sincere and trying to live, you know, okay. I'm doing my best. Isn't that good enough for God? In fact, when I was in high school, I was involved in kind of an evangelism program, and Randy Ferguson and I actually went out and visited uh, one man who invited us into his home. His nickname was Corky. And I can still remember the conversation because Randy asked him the question, hey, if you would die tonight and you were before the throne of God, um, and God said, why should I let you in? What would you say? And Corky looks and says, matter-of-factly, why not? Basically, he was saying, I'm good enough. Why not? Because the gospel says, you're so bad. I know, this is tough. You're so bad that it takes the Son of God himself to take your place and take all of that and die for you for you to get in. But the gospel also says you are so absolutely head over heels loved that the Son of God was sent by the Father to do exactly that for you, to bring you in and open the gates of heaven for you. The gospel actually contradicts every system of thought, every world culture, every worldview. It offends the religious and the irreligious equally as well. And unless you have felt a little of that offense of the gospel, you probably don't understand what it's all saying. Because I'm offended because I've always wanted and try again and again to base my um, status on what people think of me, how good I do things, how much I know. You know, my nationality, maybe, my work ethic, my own righteous ideas about myself, and the gospel says that all goes away. It doesn't work anymore. It never did. Now, my, my status, my identity is now based not on any of those things, but on Jesus Christ himself, that I am welcomed into the family of God by his sacrifice, his character, his work, his righteousness. So it's a power like no other. 
Ernst Kaiseman put it well. He said that idea of righteousness is God's salvation creating power. It's not a thing that God possesses like I'm righteous, but it's a thing that he gives and creates in us that he is able to save us. So um, God does, in a sense, through the gospel, what no amount of other kinds of power could ever do. He changes the status you have with him and nothing else can accomplish that. And that also means then that you are declared righteous by God himself so that the powers of evil that are at work in this world, the devil himself can try to accuse you, can try to deceive you, can try to even use God's word against you. And it cannot and will not change your status. They're just lies. They're just falsehoods. They don't have any weight any longer. Even God's law itself, his truth, cannot be used against you to change your status because of Jesus Christ. And no amount of political or psychological powers that the world has can change any uh, truth of your status before God. You know, people might try to point out your faults. They might try to sully your reputation in social media. It has no effect on your position with God. Others might try to claim that unless you're part of their party, unless you vote for this candidate, you will be an outcast or you are totally not acceptable, but they cannot change the fact that you have been welcomed into the kingdom of God by Jesus Christ and no other. And no amount of physical power can change your status before God. The world can come at you with bullets and bombs, but nothing will get in the way of the fact that you have been chosen by God, loved, forgiven, and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. That's what Paul understood by the power of God. And he writes about it most powerfully in Romans chapter 8, where he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you get it? When the gospel's power is at work, every other power gives way. And when you realize that, what joy, what comfort, what security, what courage it can bring to you. God is mending your broken status with him. He has healed you and made you whole. So this gospel, I know, this seems kind of almost like an academic mind exercise, but it's not at all. It has existential impact for your very being every day. Whether you realize it or not, everybody in this world is seeking this thing called righteousness. Now, they might use other words for it. They might say, I'm trying to feel good about myself. They're looking for righteousness. They might say, I'm trying to have contentment. They're looking for righteousness. They might say, I'm, I, I, I want a lot more peace in my life. They're looking for righteousness. I'm seeking significance. I want to really make a difference in this world. They're looking for righteousness. They're looking for a status that they cannot get through what they do, what they think, what they can accomplish with their life. They are seeking after something that God freely gives in Jesus Christ. Righteousness that God approves you, that God welcomes you, 
that God declares that you are his, that God places the verdict on you that you are righteous because of Jesus Christ, that he mends his relationship with you, he brings healing to those things that are fractured, he straightens things that are bent, he declares what he wants to see in you and me and changes everything. So I pray that's what Luther had as his tower experience, evangelical breakthrough, the gates of paradise open before him, that as you understand that the form of the gospel is good news and not good advice, that you understand that the content of the gospel is not simply forgiveness, but the righteousness of Jesus that is positively given to you, that the power of the gospel changes your eternal standing and no power in this world in all of the universe could ever change that, that that too will be a breakthrough for you as we continue in this series, Justified, how God mends broken people and a broken world. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, thank you so much for this day, for um, your good news, the gospel. <laughs> Lord, we pray for breakthrough in our lives that um, like Paul had the scales fall off of his eyes and he could see clearly again, that he would see, that we would see what you have given us freely, how you have loved us eternally, how you've changed our status um, <laughs> existentially and completely. Lord God, I pray that you would be with those in our congregation this day who are facing anxiety and stress, difficulty and struggle, Lord, for anyone who might be facing financial woes, Lord God, during this time, that you would knit us together as a body here, that we would serve one another, that everyone has enough, and that we would truly be the family of God. We pray, Lord God, uh, for anyone who needs healing today. We know Jamie has just undergone uh, surgery. We thank you, Lord, for the, its success and continue that healing. We thank you for the news that Andrea has received from Moffat, that this cancer, Lord, we pray now is totally healed, and that whether you do it directly or through an, a clinical trial or whatever way, Lord, you get all the glory for that. We pray, Lord God, uh, for Pastor Zender, who continues uh, recovery from COVID-19, now in rehab, Lord. We thank you for his progress and pray for your healing there. Lord God, as we prepare uh, to receive the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would show us not <laughs> our sinfulness. We know that too well. Forgive us for that, Lord, but show us the righteous gift that you are, Lord Jesus, and the fact that you would give to disciples who would walk away from you even that night, that you would give yourself fully to us and you would be our righteousness and our redemption and our wisdom and our all in all. Lord, thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would also make us giving people, people who willingly respond to your goodness and grace, that we uh, can show and display your, your, your wonderful good news to others through gifts like we give, Lord, for the drive-by, with gifts as we give just for extending your kingdom through this church, with the way that we spend time in prayer and service in this community, that your righteousness will be known 
and that we are freely extending it, that good news to all. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.